Oh, hello and welcome to uh well should i introduce this as the for we are many podcast or as the bread theory podcast it's both both yeah uh Joint we are change. diving into part two of emma goldman's anarchism and other essays um if you're following along with the link in the description from the anarchist library uh, i i would just recommend keeping it open until you're done reading it um, I hope that we're picking up at the same place that we left off. <laughs> <laughs> I think we are. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we are too. Right. Everything behind it seemed familiar. Everything in front of it did not. <laughs> for sure. Um, anyway, so in terms of the For We Are Many podcast, I just wanted to point out that we have a Hurricane Ida special piece published to our website that includes... Um, links to organizations that are on the ground that you can either request help from if you're in the area and you still need help. Uh, hopefully there's not very many people that still need to be rescued. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, or you can send them supplies or you can donate monetarily. Um, and we also have an article up about the Nabisco Mandela strike. Um, with two strike funds uh, linked. They're just GoFundMes for the union, pretty much. Um, but if you have any other organizations that could be added to either of those, uh, you know, please message our Facebook page or send us an email for wearemanypodcast at gmail.com. Um, obviously, when we did this piece about Hurricane Ida, it hadn't hit the Northeast yet, and somehow after like a thousand miles on land, Hurricane Ida was damn near as destructive in the Northeast as it was in Southeast Louisiana where it made landfall. That's so, just incredible that it, I mean, that's, that's the, the power of global warming. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay. So like I've heard, I, being in Michigan, even, I remember getting like remnants of hurricanes in the past, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, some 45, 50 mile an hour winds and some mm-hmm. heavy rains for a day or so. But never in my life have I seen a hurricane land in Louisiana, go through Mississippi, Tennessee, Alabama, well, part of Alabama, part of the part of the panhandle of Florida, if we're mm-hmm. talking about the rain bands. Um, and then, you know, Tennessee, Southern Ohio, Kentucky, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, uh new york and new jersey if i'm missing anywhere please let me know but i mean yeah. it it just left devastation in its wake the whole way it's kind of mind-blowing it it is like and usually when once the hurricane makes landfall people kind of breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief because that means it's going to lose its power it gets its power from the ocean mostly but that just kept plowing through like i haven't i, I mean the only other hurricane that was even that deadly and powerful that i can remember was sandy but that came from the ocean in inland right uh, when it when it hit new york it wasn't the other way around like that this is just it's i mean maybe it is heard of but i've never heard of anything like it no i haven't either and uh i mean even though hurricane sandy hit as a category one from the ocean it didn't cause it, the rainfall that fell off of that was much less severe i mean granted it was also freezing temps so that's yeah. challenges all on its own but uh Ida dumped 3.15 inches in Central Park, New York, and one 
hour. That's, I can't imagine that. That's like looking outside and seeing a, a lake being dumped on you. That's yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Like, I mean, how do you even, and, and I mean, people can talk about the infrastructure all they want to, but I would like to see your city handle three inches of rain in one hour better. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't think mine could. That's I don't. I, I live in Phoenix. Mine definitely could not. Well, yeah. Okay, we get two <laughs> yeah. inches of rain in a week and we're flooding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. Anyway, uh, the point is, though, if you are able to donate to any of the organizations that are on the ground helping the people in any of the uh, areas affected by Ida, I strongly recommend that. There are a lot of people that lost a lot over the last week or so. Yes, please donate what you can. And uh, yeah, um, the only other thing that I wanted to talk about, which is a little more fun, thankfully, is that we will be having the Star Trek communist uh, found on Twitter as at uh, Boomer Niner um, on our podcast to talk about Star Trek and communism. Who would have thought that? Very cool. Um, but that should be pretty exciting. We'll be talking about uh, how the the original series unveiled the Prime Directive in the middle of the ramping up of the Vietnam War. And I, I mean, it was basically uh, a blatant call out of the U.S. imperial system. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, actually, this is one of his tweets from from the other day. But he was talking about how the Klingon Empire is still a feudal society. And um, obviously a, a portion of their society is oppressed and they could be the spark that, that caused uh, an interplanetary socialist revolution. So that'll be interesting to, you know, yeah. hypothetically talk about anyway. Um, as well as like the, the narratives in Deep Space Nine. I mean, the, uh, the, the planet of Bajor being straight up brutally oppressed by the Cardassian Empire um, there's a lot of similarities in my opinion between the, the Israel Palestine mm -hmm. situation. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's just a small sampling of, um, a few of the things that we plan to talk about. That'll be at, that'll be on Tuesday night. Usually we have our current event stream, but, uh, well, this is how the scheduling worked out to be able to do this live. So we are not doing a current event stream this coming week. We are doing a future event stream. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Yep, that's all. I know, uh, I know that you're doing State and Revolution on Fridays, right? Yep, yep. Every Friday I'm at uh, 7 o'clock p.m. central standard time i've been doing a uh try to do a chapter a week in a leftist theory book and right now we're on state and revolution uh perhaps moving that to, to wednesdays to accommodate more guests and stuff like that but but uh for now that the schedule is uh, every friday and then on sundays i do uh, a different stream that's that's not generally theory i've been working my way through doing permaculture 101 so i'll be doing that tomorrow night at uh probably around 7 p.m central standard time as well uh, we're on part eight of, of intro to permaculture. There's a lot of ground to cover in that. that yeah, yeah, there is. And honestly, yeah. like hats off to you for doing that. 
Thank I you so not, much. I have not seen anybody really uh, do an in-depth dive into permaculture. I've seen some articles about it. People try to, you know, like put all these ideas into, you know, essentially like what a probably page article and you're just like, oh, okay, but how? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, to be honest, one, one of the, the, the difficulties that I'm struggling against is, is so many permaculturists like to put their work behind a paywall. So in order to actually learn the, the theory, you have to take their class, which can be oftentimes over a thousand dollars. And that's not something that everyone just has extra money laying around to, to put towards. So, so I like to, to break that wall and, and, and give it away for free, basically, because I think it's one of the most important theories that's come about in, in the past hundred years and something that's really applicable to leftist theory. I've been trying to kind of meld the two and bring in some, some ideas of urban planning as well. Uh, but so anyway, my, my Twitch handle is bread underscore theory. And uh, you can check me out by going to my link tree. You can follow me on all the different platforms at L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash bread underscore theory. And that'll bring you to, you know, Facebook, YouTube, uh, Twitter, Twitch, all the different ones. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm definitely going to have to catch up on that, too, because I've only seen the first piece so far. And now you just said you're on part eight. And I'm like, oh, I know. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I got to catch up in uh, putting out my, my YouTube videos too. I take my stream and just edit it down just pretty lightly and then put it up as a YouTube stream. But hopefully I'll get caught up on this long weekend here and, and be more up to date. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, all right. So um, I guess we can dive right into the text then. Yeah, let's get to it. Um. It was inevitable that the young dreamer from Konigsberg uh, should be drawn into the maelstrom. Uh, to remain outside of the circle of free ideas meant a, a life of vegetation, of death. One need not wonder at that youthful age. Young enthusiasts were not then, and fortunately are not now, a rare phenomenon in Russia. The study of Russian language soon brought young Emma Goldman in touch with revolutionary students and new ideas. The place of Marlet was taken by Nekrasov and Chernevsky, Chernyshevsky. There we go, Chernyshevsky. Chernyshevsky, wow. That's a lot of consonants. <laughs> yes, it is, all packed in there. <laughs> uh, the quantum admirer of the good Queen Louise became a glowing enthusiast of liberty, resolving like thousands of others to devote her life to the emancipation of the people. Very cool. Yeah, so so it, it's talking again about how her her upbringing and and um, the ideas that she was exposed to really shaped the person that she became, and and that's something that that Marx likes to talk about a lot, how you, the material conditions of your life are going to to be the biggest influence on your your worldview. So I think there's there's definitely a lot of truth to that. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, you just pointed out that, that Marx writes about that a lot, but mm -hmm. I, I think that even most on the right would, uh, would tend to agree with that if you didn't use Marxist language to describe it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, although they also do really love that narrative of the great men of history just rising above their ranks. They love a good rags to riches story, even though it's almost, almost never true. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, I, th- I think we actually talked in the first part about this, uh, yeah. about that, that Stalin, I mean, even, even for our enemies, we like to paint him as a great man in history. Oh, uh-huh. Stalin did this. Stalin did yeah, that. Yeah. Stalin was a brutal dictator. Stalin didn't do shit without the support of the masses. Absolutely. Yep. Definitely a product of his, his times very much as well. So yeah, yeah it's never just one person. Right. Right. So like, I mean, a lot of the mistakes that the USSR did make, I think, should be attributed to all of Russian society, not to one guy on top. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Many factors, I'm sure, contributed, not least of which uh, influence from the US and and our constant. As, as early as the Russian Civil War. I know. So like right from the beginning. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Which is just wild to think about, you know, uh, uh, what we would consider a third world backwards country um you know rising above that to become a world superpower right yeah in such a, a short period of time they they moved from from feudalism to to a modern society with modern technology and like a generation it was that's pretty incredible yeah that, that that didn't happen in the u.s it took us forever to uh even with the advent of the industrial revolution to get ourselves out of uh the rise and become a, a global power. And in fact, it took basically World War One for us to be a major player on the world stage. Well, yeah. And I mean, even what we had built up by that point was on the backs of African slaves through the genocide of the Native Americans. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So even with all that plundering and stealing and, and absolutely free labor, it still took us a while to, to rise to that point. And Russia or USSR did it in a generation. Right. And, and I mean, that being said, like that, that rapid industrialization, regardless of what economic system it happens under, mm-hmm. is always brutal. I mean, mm-hmm. look at the late 1800s, early 1900s in the United States. Look, oh, yeah. at, look at what the life expectancy was. Uh, look at what the working conditions for the average working class person were. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like when people, especially Western white people, and I, I mean, obviously, we both are ourselves, but um, sure. we, we tend to tell these stories, right, about how the industrialization of the USSR was so brutal or the industrialization mm-hmm. of China was so brutal. But we face mm-hmm. the same thing here, you know, whether it be 20 years, 30 years earlier for the USSR or 60 or 70 years earlier for China. The point is, is that it happened here, too. We were literally having eight-year-old kids work in mines. Oh yeah! How quickly history forgets. Yeah, and and ironically, that's the the state of society that all these diehard capitalists want to bring us back to, especially people like the, the so-called right libertarians. That's just <laughs> yeah. like their 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 wildest dreams is is to have complete absolute freedom for private capitalists and no rights whatsoever for anybody else. And yet they call yeah. themselves for freedom, but it's a very special freedom for a very special few. I agree, but I'm gonna I'm gonna digress so we don't go down sure. that rabbit hole. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. That could be a piece all on its own. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> all right, I'll, I'll continue on in the in the passage here. Then, the struggle of generations now took place in the German family. The parents could not comprehend what interest their daughter could find in these new ideas which themselves, uh, which they themselves considered fantastic utopias. 
They strove to persuade the young girl out of these chimeras and daily repetition of soul racking disputes was the result. Only, uh, one, only in one member of the family did the young idealist find understanding in her eldest sister, Helene, with whom she uh, later emigrated to America and whose love and sympathy have never failed her. Even in the darkest hours of later uh, persecution, Emma Goldman always found a haven or refuge in the home of this loyal sister. So leading into this next uh, paragraph here, I just want to like add my thoughts, I guess. Um, it seems like uh, the Goldman family emigrated to America chasing the very freedom um, that she would end up writing about obviously yeah. Yeah. and i mean just based on what we read in part one um i i think it's safe to say that she was very disappointed by what she saw here you know oh, yeah. um, basically that the american dream was all a bunch of propaganda to begin with yep it always has been you know so-called land of opportunity but that's again that's basically opportunity for those that already have a head start and you know <clears throat> toil and misery for basically everybody else yeah so yeah um so emma goldman finally resolved to achieve her independence she saw hundreds of men and women sacrificing brilliant uh careers to go narad to the people she followed their example she became a factory worker at first employed as a corset maker and later in the manufacture of gloves she was now 17 years of age and proud to earn her own living. Had she remained in Russia, she would have probably sooner or later shared the fate of thousands buried in the snows of Siberia. But a new chapter of life was to begin for her. Sister Helene decided to emigrate to America where another sister had already made her home. Emma prevailed upon Helene to be allowed to join her and together they departed for America, filled with the joyous hope of a great free land, the glorious Republic. And uh, that was that was when I skimmed ahead. I saw that line, and that's why I wanted to add my little oh, copy sure. out before that paragraph. Yeah, definitely. Yep. Yeah, I mean, the American dream is a, a lot like Donald Trump, kind of bad. Small, at every small loan of a million dollars. Yeah, yeah. Good, good, good for a lot of of uh, or for a fair amount of uh, rich people already. Not great for anyone else, but also really incompetent at what it does. Uh, except for advertise itself to be something different. So, so when it comes to reality, it's not the American dream for for most people. But uh, they're they're still good at pumping up that propaganda. Like people still believe this this line that oh, if you just keep your head down and work hard, you're going to get ahead, even though it's been proven time and time again to not be true for the vast majority. Yeah. Well, I mean, trickle down eco uh, economics ultimately or trickle up economics as the 40 years of data shows. Yeah. Yeah. Still waiting for that trickle down. And any, any day now, it's all just going to come. <laughs> <laughs> oh. America. Yeah, the, the day the uh, proletarian revolution starts. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's probably the trickle they were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> So when we break the glass, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It wouldn't just be money trickling down at that point either. It'd 
the other things as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway. Anyway, anyway, moving on. Uh, uh, <laughs> so America, what a magic word. The yearning of the enslaved, the promised land of the oppressed, the goal of all longing and progress. Here made the uh, here man's ideals had found their fulfillment. No czar, no Cossack, no Chinovic, uh, Chinovnik, uh, the Republic, glorious synonyms of equality, freedom, and brotherhood. Oh, I don't like that. I was trying a different view. I thought it was going to put us like side by side, not. Yeah, you just you just dominated everything there. <laughs> as soon as I saw it, I was like, wait, no, 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 no. How about this? Is that better? Well, it hasn't changed from my end yet. Oh, well, great. <laughs> now you're just floating in a in a white void. <laughs> cool. Cool. All right. Well, we'll just go back to this then. Yeah, that's fine I, with me. I tried. Yeah, uh, I, got, I got no problem with that. That's thus cool. thought the two girls as they traveled in the year 1886. So just to like point out how fucking long ago that was. Um, so like our podcast has done a lot of like historical strike, uh, like labor strike pieces. And most of them took place after the year 1886. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like labor unions were just in their very infancy stages in this era, just to reiterate how long ago this is for sure um from new york to rochester soon all too soon disillusionment awaited them the ideal conception of america was punctured already at castle garden and soon burst like a soap bubble here emma goldman witnessed sights which reminded her of the terrible scenes of her childhood in curland the brutality and humiliation the future citizens of the Great Republic were subjected to on board ship were repeated at Castle Garden by the officials of the democracy in a more savage and aggravated manner. At what or and what bitter disappointment followed as the young idealist began to familiarize herself with the conditions in the new land. Instead of one Tsar, she found scores of them. The Cossack, Cossack, Cossack? I think it's Cossack. Cossack, uh, Cossack felt right. Yeah, that's what I, that's how I've heard it. So uh, the Cossack was replaced by the policeman with the heavy club, and instead of the Russian chin chinovnik, uh, there was the far more inhumane slave driver of the factory or mm -hmm. you know, foreman. All of yeah. our factories still have slave drivers today. Yeah, saying. yeah, it's it's crazy. They they keep that same language just so so nakedly i think they do want to remind people if uh, you know we could go back to a, a different system at any point if you don't keep in line and then you know keep your head down um but yeah i mean i could probably make the argument that we were better off under feudalism than capitalism but i don't want to go backwards i want to go forward I, I definitely don't want to go backwards either yeah um yeah, but I mean, in certain ways, like uh, your average uh, surf had more vacation time per year than your average worker today. Um, they didn't ever have to really worry about what their profession was going to be because it was just kind of inherited. Uh, you know, at the same time, it's a much more rigid caste system. So you have zero chance of ever moving up or, or organizing anything different. But but yeah, it's 
it's not as though things are all roses now that we burst through to capital. Well, I wouldn't say zero chance of organizing something different. Vladimir Lenin might have something to say about that. <laughs> true, true. I'm, I'm, yeah, but for the average person, it, it yeah. Is, yeah, I know. I got what you were saying. I just had yeah, to yeah. that little no, that, that, that's a That's a good point, though. That's definitely a good point. Nothing is inevitable and insurmountable. That's very true. But the, I, I think this is really interesting, this, this last passage, um, uh, talking about how uh, you still have that same authoritarian apparatus, just it's been privatized. And, and that's something that I try to argue a lot when I, when I talk with these you know, capitalists, apologists, and, and right-wingers that, that come on my stream, I'm like, do you enjoy living in an authoritarian, like, dictatorial system? Because that's what you're experiencing for eight to ten hours a day when you're at work. You don't get a single say in the running of the company. Right, may have which, a, which a, I mean, is the whole basis of Marxism, but everybody wants to, like, try to boil down, you know, Marxist theory to, like, the economic system or the... Mm -hmm. the uh, the misunderstanding, I guess, to put it bluntly, of democratic centralism and how the state mm -hmm. operates. And I mean, oh yeah, the whole point, though, is that you're oppressed by your employer, and we mm -hmm. need to turn that system upside down. That's the entire point, and we often get so far away from that. Absolutely, yeah, and it needs to be talked about more because like, that's something that capitalists, even the ones that that I've I've talked to, that that um, you know seem to have every talking point memorized for their side. They don't really have an answer to that ever. You know, the, the best they can do is like, oh, we need to give money to rich people because they're job creators. I'm like, okay, well, even if that's true, which I don't believe it's true, but even if it were, why do we still have to have uh, a dictatorial system at work? Why can't we have more democratically managed and, and run uh, workplace? What's the problem with that? And, and I get the only... The only response I've ever gotten was, oh, democracy's cringe. And like, if you get them to that point, I mean, is anyone going to take them seriously? Yeah. I don't think so. Right. Exactly. Well, and I, I mean, that's never mind. I'll go too far off topic. <laughs> yeah. I, I tend to get off on a lot of tangents when I, it, when I do my streaming and stuff. It's okay, man. I know <laughs> that uh, you haven't had to like sit through too many streams with me and Trisha yet, but we do that same shit. <laughs> I think it's fun though. You never, you know, it's, it's a way to like engage the text with like the, our current conditions and our, in the current real world. It's a way of- Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, for a while we tried to like dial back on the amount of, well, we still do try to dial back on the amount of off topic yeah. tangents we go down, but at the same time, if it's something that's going to give modern context to a writing from a hundred fucking years ago. Absolutely do it <laughs> don't even think about it just do it yeah yeah i'm with you for sure all right where are we at here so emma goldman soon obtained work in the clothing establishment of the garçon company the wages amounted to two and a half dollars a week i wonder what that would compare to in today's dollars that'd be interesting to, to what comment. year was it 1890 uh, something so, so they six We'll just say 1886. 1886 looks like about a close approximation. So yeah, I wonder what that would be like today. Uh, uh, how I'll, much I'll was keep... it? I'm sorry, two and a half so, dollars a week. Two and a half dollars a week in current day dollars. Hold on. 
Okay. I'll just, I'll just continue talking yeah. as, you, as you look that up there. At the same time, the factories were not provided with motor power, and the poor sewing girls had to drive the wheels by foot. Ooh, that sounds like you're going to get some ligament and tendon issues after not too long doing that. From the early morning till late night, late at night, a terribly exhausting toll it was without a ray of light the drudgery of the long day passed in complete silence. The Russian custom of friendly conversation at work was not permissible in this free, and they didn't put quotes, but I think it, it deserves quotes, this free country. Uh, but the exploitation of the girls was not only economic, the poor wage workers were locked or were looked upon by their foremen and bosses as sexual commodities. Hmm. If a girl resented the advances of her quote unquote superiors, she would speedily find herself on the street uh, as an undesirable element in the factory. There was never a lack of willing victims. The supply always exceeded the demand. Okay, so the value of two and a half dollars in 1886 yeah. would be $72.61 today, but that doesn't mean it has the same buying power. That's true. Um, the The dollar today has less than three percent of the buying power of a dollar in 1886 oh wow yeah so yeah so that would be what even if you multiplied that by how, how many times would that be uh, like say 33 times right yeah like 33 times so what what would that be what would be the buying power then so I guess what we're saying is that a dollar then was like, what, 30-something dollars now? Yeah, so two point, so so you said $75 would be the the thing. So times 33. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. Right? Oh, God. Yeah, that's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So, yeah, 75 times 33. Uh, twenty four hundred seventy five dollars of buying power. Jesus Christ, so, that's wild. That is wild. So I mean, if those if those figures are are accurate, that means they would have they, they would have been, been a lot living, uh, a lot better off than today's working class. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong; the the conditions themselves were different. Yeah. But I mean, part of that I think is engineered anyway. I mean, we're used to having lights on, but do we do we really need that? That's you true. Know, like That's we're true. we're used to having air conditioning. Well, I'm in Phoenix. I'm not advocating for getting rid of air conditioning here, but yeah, I think that that just adds to the problem. You're pumping heat back out into the atmosphere for one and for two, the greenhouse yep. gases that they emit and the greenhouse yep. gases that are burned to produce the power for them to emit greenhouse gases yep. to pump more heat back into the atmosphere. Sure, it's a whole cascading effect. Right. Yep. When we could just uh, start by designing our, our houses and our cities differently and, and lower that temperature to begin with um, and do all sorts of other things to. Yeah. Well, and that's another thing too. I think that we think of comfort in the modern sense, you know, we have, we have houses that are not designed to be self-cooling. I mean, between the materials that were used and the way they were built, if you look at a farmhouse from the 1800s, for example, it's going to have very high ceilings. It's going to have a lot of windows specifically on the north and south are specifically on the north and yeah the north and south so it'll be less sunny than you know east and west yeah. but uh 
the the whole point though is to circulate the air right and we don't really do that or or i mean like heat sinks two thousand years ago there were buildings in constantinople that uh that function basically like modern heat sinks do the two thousand year old technology mm-hmm yeah, yeah, and a lot of that stuff we could do relatively cheaply today, especially like uh, even just ground source heating, which is just circulating either a, a gas or a fluid down into the Earth's, down a few feet, like, you know, 20, 30 feet into the Earth, where it's a constant, it's a pretty constant temperature. So that just moderates that temperature. You could be getting 50 degree air being pumped into your house in the summertime and, and heating up 50 degree air to, to warm yourself in the wintertime, which is a lot better than the conditions outside having to come up from zero or below zero. Yeah. So. Yeah. And actually that's something that's been used a lot already in Europe or like mm -hmm. construction materials. Look at, yeah. look at how quickly things like hempcrete have caught on in Europe Absolutely. compared to here. And yeah. I mean, hempcrete has a better insulation factor than concrete. Mm-hmm. And it's carbon negative because as it cures, it sucks carbon out of the atmosphere. That's really cool. That's awesome. Yeah, but here it's just about quick and and cheap and replicable. So you can slap up a bunch of buildings in, in really short order. Well, yeah. Uh, for example, I work at a country club, okay? Uh -huh. And I mean, I don't know how much these houses go for, but I know that they're not cheap. And I know that on top of that, they pay member fees every month yeah. uh, to be able to use the clubhouse, which is where I work. And uh, actually there's two clubhouses if you want to get technical, um, but two different hardwood roofs came down, or hardwood ceilings, I should say, not roofs. <laughs> Big difference between a ceiling collapse and a roof collapse. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, point is, is that within a week, two hardwood ceilings came down in each of the clubs uh, because they were they were glued together instead of like you know you can't just glue hardwood to a fucking ceiling that's not how anything works no um so you know usually it's not very humid here so they didn't think that would ever be an issue but we actually had a decent monsoon season this year and it was muggy for like a month Mm -hmm. and all this glue let go basically and then they had to spend a bunch of money to put the shit back up which they probably just glued back up oh sure yeah uh because the whole point is to to just do it quick and i mean this building is like 10 or 15 years old there is no reason that hardwood ceiling should be collapsing if they were designed and built properly right yeah yeah which, which makes it just so and and that's like where relatively rich people live mm -hmm. so imagine how it is at say a, a, a giant apartment complex absolutely and, and that's also with current building regulations imagine if we just did away with all building regulations as so many developers and, and construction people would love to have it would just be slapdash and then fall over constantly yeah. like yeah I mean, there's a reason that that uh, they had to finally force cities to put in fire escapes is because tenement fires were incredibly lethal. Hundreds of people would die because there was no regulation. And the idea of just doing away with that is just absurd. It, really. it is. It, it's absurd. All for the, the the sake of making an extra dollar out of it. So shows you where the capitalist priorities are. 
is not Listen in people. In, yes, absolutely. All right. Let's see. Where are we at? Yeah, sorry. I, I steered that. I just grabbed the wheel and yanked it left. That is fine. I love it. <laughs> um, I think it was your turn. Oh, were you at the end of the... Um, yeah, I think I got... To, did I? Uh, you might I have, honestly. I, I wasn't listening because I was trying oh, to yeah, figure I did. out the... Yeah, they were talking about how... And, and you know... In, in the era of Me Too, this is also quite relevant. How their their uh, superiors would make sexual advances on the women, and if they refused, they would just kick them out of the the job. They'd be out on the street and destitute. So, uh, again, you have that power imbalance today, and and bosses still think they can take advantage of that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, luckily we live in an era now where we're starting to you know like acknowledge that women are people. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Idea, <laughs> right? I don't know how that's such a like radical idea, but I know. Um, no, it, it is still a serious problem, especially in like the uh, service industry. Um, you see this kind of shit all the time, and mm -hmm. I'm glad that it's a tradition that is finally. Well, I don't even want to say dying out because it's not dying out of its own accord. It's being brutally murdered by by women standing up for their. Yep. They're right. self, I yeah. guess. I mean, I don't even want to refer to it as rights. Their ability to live. Yeah. Just the, their basic bodily autonomy. Yeah. Oh. Um, anyway. Yeah. Back to the text. Sure. The horrible conditions were made still more unbearable by the fearful dreary, dreary, <laughs> dreariness of life in the small American city. The Puritan spirit suppresses the slightest manifestation of joy. A deadly dullness beclouds the soul. No intellectual inspiration, no thought exchange between congenial spirits is possible. Emma Goldman almost suffered in this atmosphere. She, above all others, longed for ideal surroundings, for friendship and for understanding, for the companionship of kindred minds. Mentally, she still lived in Russia, Unfamiliar with the language and life of this country, she dwelt more in the past than in the present. It was at this period that she met a young man who spoke Russian. With great joy, the acquaintance was cultivated. At last, a person with whom she could converse, one who could help her bridge the dullness of the narrow existence. The friendship gradually ripened and finally culminated in marriage. I... I bought halfway through this paragraph. I was like, this is going to be your husband, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like they introduce a, another character in the middle of a romantic comedy and you're like, yeah, yeah, I know where this is going. <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah, I, I think uh, one thing that, that pops up for me in this paragraph is, is the, uh, what Marx called, what was it? The, the alienation of work, basically how people, no longer could take any joy in what they did because they'd been so reduced and so specialized down that there was no time to, you know, even converse with other people, have basic human connection at work. Um, and how this, this uh, corporate capitalism, this, this, you know, really large scale capitalism pushed towards that, that hyper efficiency that at the same time robbed people of, of any sort of meaningful work relationships. So it's, it's good of, you know, it's amazing that she managed to push through that too and and find someone to connect with and, you know, become married too eventually. 
Yeah, I mean, actually, uh, before you take off in the next paragraph, I just want to point out, like, given the situation that she, the, the conditions that she grew up and came of age in and really, you know, discovered herself, she could have just as easy, easily turned out to be a fascist. Oh, yeah. It was a conscious choice every step of the way to be on the side of the people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's always those 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 two forces that seem to pull from from opposite sides. When when things are really bad, it's it's either that they pull to go back to this imagined past where everything was better, or to push forward to something where it can be better than it ever has been. Right, right. And I mean, we still see that today in regards to climate Absolutely. change. Um, I mean, that's kind of what sold me on socialism to begin with. Like, mm. <clears throat> I mean, real socialism, not yeah, yeah. not Bernie Sanders socialism. Sure, yeah. Um, but ultimately, um, socialism is the only thing that's, in my opinion, going to turn around the, the climate situation. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, we already know that uh, capitalism isn't going to do it, but there are people who advocate, essentially, they won't call it this, of course, but there are people, even people who claim to be on the left that push for eco-fascism, you know, like, uh, and that can take many forms. It can be mm -hmm. um, vegans who, who hold against people that eat meat, that they eat meat. Yeah. That can, uh, you know, well, do you know what you're doing to the climate? Okay, well, the issue isn't really the people eating meat. The issue is the people putting those animals in those conditions to begin with. Absolutely. Um, you know, or like, oh, well, you should take shorter showers or, or you should have a, a, a lesser commute or drive an yeah. electric vehicle or, or use biodegradable soap. You get the point. Absolutely. Um, and I, I mean, ultimately, I don't think that it should be such a cut and dry thing. No. Um, do, do I think that we could all make choices that are better for the planet? Yes, I do. But do I think there should be force? No. Not when the biggest contributors are the military industrial complex and giant corporations. Absolutely. Who have every vested interest to keep on doing what they're doing and squeeze every dollar out of killing the planet that they possibly can. It's right. it's it's this this really sick thing where it always seems like it's more profitable to do something that harms everybody in the long run. Um, even if we're talking about selling people eco products and stuff like that, in the long run, it's better just to do without and change our lifestyle than it is to, you know, think that we can somehow consume our way to environmental sustainability and a greener future. It just, it cannot happen that way. Well, I mean, honestly, in terms of like how countries are reacting to climate change, the two that I pay the most attention to are not by any means Western countries. I mean, China has turned a significant portion of their desert, uh, you know, which was an effect mm -hmm. of climate change as well. Their desert was rapidly growing and they rerouted rivers to stop it. That's incredible. Like that. I mean, in terms of like geoengineering, that's some of the most incredible shit that I've ever seen. And then Cuba. I mean, after the revolution, their forest cover went from like 12% to like yeah. 60%. Yeah. And that was out of necessity because uh, they they had to all of a sudden grow a lot more of their own food and rely on their own land for a lot more of their, their forest products. So Yeah. And, and I mean, 
that being said, the fact or the, the situation that drove them to that, uh, to those actions should have never been forced, but at least uh, we can see that they are adaptable. Mm-hmm. We're still doing the same shit that we were doing in 1952 and it still ain't working. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But it, 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 that is hopeful that, that if it comes to some point where there's a, a giant environmental catastrophe that people will finally just say, Oh, there's no other option. Now we gotta, we just gotta live differently. And so, yeah, I, I find that a little bit hopeful at least that people can change. Yeah. Cool. Um, Where are we at here? Yeah, back to the text. We're at Emma yeah. Goldman too. Yeah, yeah. Emma Goldman too had to walk the sorrowful role, uh, road of married life. She too had to learn from bitter experience that legal statutes signify, uh, signify dependence and self-effacement, especially for the woman. The marriage was not was no liberation from the Puritan dreariness of American life. Indeed, it was rather aggravated by the loss of self-ownership. The characters of the young people uh, differed too wildly. A separation soon followed, and Emma Goldman went to New Haven, Connecticut. There she found employment in a factory, and her husband disappeared from her horizon. Two decades later, she was fated to be unexpectedly reminded of him by the feudal or the federal authorities. The revolutionaries who were active in Russian in the Russian movement of the 80s were but little familiar with the social ideas and agitating Western uh, then agitating Western Europe and America. Their sole activity consisted of educating the people. Their final goal, the destruction of autocracy. Socialism and anarchism were terms hardly known even by name. Emma Goldman too was entirely unfamiliar with the significance of those ideas. So yeah, we, we, we see here that, that capitalism and its framework even puts something as, as supposedly sacred and personal as the marriage relationship into uh, authoritarian and, and capitalist terms of, of now the, the man has control over the wife, control over finances in the household, and the woman has to be basically the the underpaid or not at all paid really worker to keep the house running smoothly. Uh, so yeah, no wonder she she found more misery in, in that state of affairs. Uh, it's 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 a really sad configuration, a sad way of looking at at something that supposedly is joyous and loving, uh, such as marriage. Uh, so then in the next paragraph, they were talking about how uh, the revolutionaries in Russia um, didn't really know much about what was happening in, in Western Europe and America. And so she herself didn't know too much about these ideas, these these leftist ideas. It just was not something that was well known. And that's kind of the same thing. Uh, that's kind of true today as well. Uh, I certainly didn't learn about leftist ideas in any real and meaningful sense until just a few years ago. Uh, that was more to do with the, the stigma that's placed upon them rather than any sort of uh, inability to access the information, you know, all throughout like high school, even in high school, 
never came out and necessarily said communism bad or, or anarchy bad or anything like that, but you would definitely get the idea through reading books like Animal Farm. Um, and even like 1984, uh, I always got the impression that, at least from the, the classes that I, I took in English on it, that the message is more pointed towards uh, the, the supposed authoritarianism of communism than just against totalitarianism and, and authoritarianism in general. So yeah, so just because of that stigma, I didn't learn about these ideas until much later in life. You know, I'm, I'm almost 40 myself and I, I'm pretty brand new to a lot of the stuff that even still comes up in the readings that I do um, for my theory streams and that sort of thing. So, but it's good that things are finally changing and uh, say what you will about Bernie Sanders and, and the squad, they at least made it possible to talk about these ideas again and, and be taken seriously. Um, but that's not to say that it's just the, the efforts of one person either. Again, it's because of the material conditions on the ground. We see that that minimum wage hasn't been raised in, in the past decade or more. And yet uh, people are still expected to live on these, these paltry wages. So that I think more than even the figures like Bernie Sanders and, and whatnot is what pushed these ideas to the, the forefront um, and made them, you know, tantalizing again. So, yeah, I just went on a long monologue there about uh, okay. the, the, the next two chapter uh, paragraphs. Did you uh, did you get through the next two? Yep, I got through the next two, so we're down to she arrived in America. Okay, cool. That's I was hoping I would be back for this one. Yeah. All right. Um, she arrived in America as four years previously in Russia at a period of great social and political unrest. And just for context, we're talking about across the entire globe. Really, mm -hmm. there was a, there was a wave of um, social and political unrest across Europe that began in the 1840s, um, which this was a byproduct of that. Oh, you can't see. There we go. <laughs> that, that was a, a byproduct of the uprisings that started in France and burned like a wildfire across Europe. Um, mm -hmm. But like that, that was a dialectical kind of back and forth um, situation. Obviously, the Russian Revolution didn't happen until 1917. Uh, we're, we're talking about the 1880s. Um, Anyway, the working people were in revolt against the terrible labor conditions, uh, such as eight-year-olds working in mines. Uh, the eight-hour movement <coughs> of the Knights of Labor was at its height. Uh, and just to interject here, if you go to uh, your favorite podcasting platform and you search for the Knights of Labor, uh, for We Are Many Podcasts does have a historical piece about the Knights of Labor. Um, their, their biggest thing, obviously, was fighting for the eight-hour workday. Mm. Uh, they're the ones that kind of spread that to a national platform. Um, but anyway, so we have a piece about that. Cool. Uh, and throughout the country echoed the din of sanguine, uh, sanguine strife between strikers and police. The struggle culminated in the great strike against the Harvester Company of Chicago, um, the massacre of the strikers and the judicial murder of the labor leaders 
which followed upon the historic Haymarket bomb explosion. We also have a piece on the Haymarket affair. I don't remember mm-hmm. if we called it the Haymarket affair or the Haymarket riot. Historically, mm-hmm. it's known as both. Yeah, sure. Um, but yeah, uh, we we did a piece on that too. It's an important part of American labor history. Absolutely. Uh, it, it sparked the socialist movement. Mm-hmm. It sparked the anarchist movement. Mm-hmm. And it sparked labor unions as we know them today. Right. So um, very important uh event and uh that the knights of labor was the first actually like historical piece that we did Hmm. and um we we revisited it through the haymarket affair a couple of months later um but we realized how important of an event it was we saw reference to it and other things that we were reading about that happened a decade after (laughs) you know so um, before we could talk about those things, we had to talk about that. Um, but anyway, the anarchists stood the martyr test of blood baptism. The apologists of capitalism vainly seek to justify the killing of Parsons, Spees, Lang, Fisher, and Engel. Since the publication of Governor Altgeld's reasons for his liberation of the three incarcerated Haymarket anarchists, the ones that weren't killed, mm-hmm. Uh, no doubt is left that a five-fold legal murder has been committed in Chicago in 1887. Um, yeah. Well, once yeah, I, again, I just wanted to point out how important of an event that was. For sure. Um, it, it wasn't supposed to be the, this big uh, murderous affair, you know, where a, where a bomb went off and all that. Mm-hmm. Um it, it was supposed to be a labor strike. It was escalated by the police, and then somebody set off a bomb. <laughs> I mm-hmm. mean, mm-hmm. Uh, the, it's just the kind of back and forth struggle that you, you kind of have to expect in these kind of situations. Um, America was facing some serious uh, societal, what's the word I'm looking for, contradictions. Um, and nine times out of ten, at least in a historical sense, the way that they work themselves out is through violent, violent struggle, whether that's what the yep. people who were organizing at the time wanted or not is kind of irrelevant. It's usually mm-hmm. how it plays out. Absolutely. Yeah. And all, all the right wingers like to throw like Martin Luther King Jr. in your face and be like, oh, just do peaceful struggle. How come you can't be peaceful and all this stuff? Well, the the. <laughs> The uh, entire civil rights movement, like the the biggest gains in the civil rights movement, happened after his assassination, and the, and the, the riots, riots, the yeah. riots that ensued after that. So, you know, even though he himself also was not completely pacifistic, uh, he himself, especially under- at the end of his life. I mean, Absolutely, honestly, yeah. the uh, the birth of the poor people's campaign, I think, is what got him murdered. Yep. Yeah, he was definitely starting to to talk more and more also about socialism and, and being a socialist and how the capitalism is is going to leave uh, black people behind, which it definitely does. And um, he and he warned us specifically about the white moderates. Yes, who, about the white moderates. Who I mean, if we really get down to it, did their damnedest to co-opt the Black Lives Matter movement, which was a Marxist movement yep. for the Democratic Party. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They want him to be like, you know, the Tea Party was for the right, basically. And just, you know, an agitating group that, you know, maybe did some rallies once in a while, but was pretty ineffective. But they could still, you know, 
invoke anytime they're talking about making real changes like oh yeah well we support blm and stuff like that so i remember that all the way back in the occupy days there was mm-hmm. a we we were doing public outreach we were at a farmer's market in flint michigan uh handing out uh a little quarter sheet sure. you know handout pamphlets yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh this dude like he he read probably like two words on the page and start turned around and started screaming at us about how what we were doing was ineffective and if we wanted real change then we needed to join the tea party and we're all like didn't you guys like elect two people and then cease to exist like fuck off dude yeah really (laughs) yeah yeah what a bunch of nothing that that movement was too like oh it's, it's those are basically the 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 proto trumpers of their day and, absolutely yeah absolutely yeah. um very few have grasped the significance of the chicago martyrdom and i i mean <laughs> least of all the ruling classes it says but i would i would just like to reiterate the very few have grasped because i mean i thought all of us thought going into this that we were pretty well educated on labor history. I mean, being from Michigan, how could we not be? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, we all knew about the formation of the UAW, the the sit down strike in Flint. You know, like I, I mean, we knew about a lot of things that happened in the twenties and thirties in terms of labor organizing, and we kind of like had this idea in our heads that for the most part, that's where it started. And we realized, well, first of all, how long or how wrong we were, but uh, even initially reading about that event, it wasn't until we were reading about subsequent events 10 years down the road that we were like, oh, they're still talking about the Haymarket affair. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, so like we kind of had to like go back and well, that's when we finally did the piece on the Haymarket riots was like, you know, when we circled back to it, like, hey, this is this is pretty damn important. Absolutely. Um, anyway, back to the text. By the destruction of a number of labor leaders, they thought to stem the tide of a world-inspiring idea. They failed to consider that from the blood of the martyrs grows the new seed, and that the frightful injustice will win new converts to the cause. Mm -hmm. Also important to remember that just by destroying people, you don't destroy the underlying conditions that made them, which is why policing can never be an effective way to eliminate crime because so much of crime, especially violent crime, and and especially drug crime as well too, has to do with uh, economic inopportunity. And you definitely don't change that by locking a bunch of people up. So you're never gonna squash the movement just by killing the people in it. Well, I mean, not, well, I I don't know. I mean, it seems like they were pretty effective uh, against the Black Panther Party with that approach, but generally, Generally, I would tend to agree with you. And I mean, if you look at when Che Guevara was killed, I mean, you know, like they they literally had him forced on his knees. And the last words that he said before they killed him was, go ahead and kill me. You'll only be killing a man. In other words, like you can kill me, but you're not going to stop this fucking wave of revolution in Latin America. And we still Mm -hmm. see that unfolding today, almost 50 years later. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as hard as the CIA and and um, the UK operatives try to dismantle any sort of leftist movement in Central and South America, they just keep coming back 
again, because the conditions are still there. You're not, you're not actually helping anybody or changing anything. You're still just going to come back to the same point because people want to live free lives, basically. Right. And, and I mean, you know, the people on the right like to spout this narrative about how, uh, you know, when people are oppressed, they all, they all go for a single uh, symbol to represent the freedom that they seek. And that's the flag of the United States. Oh, God. But, I mean, in Brazil, we saw a bunch of literal fascists, you know, marching with the U.S. flag and with Donald Trump flags, even. Um, And uh, same thing in France. There's been some uh, uh, anti-mask protests where they're Mm -hmm. fucking, you know, waving the American flag. Um, Same thing in Hong Kong. uh, Yeah, same thing. Same thing in Hong Kong. But... If we look at actual oppressed people, if we look at the global South, when they are oppressed and they choose a symbol to represent their struggle, it is never the American flag. (laughs) Never. It is almost always the hammer and sickle. Yep. Yep. Uh, And that doesn't matter if you're talking about Southeast Asia, if we're looking at modern day Myanmar and India. Um, It doesn't matter if you're looking at South America. I mean, there's a whole list of countries there. I mean, yep. Um, and, and sometimes the anarchist A as well. Uh, the, the Zapatista movement in, in Mexico, that's their flag, is, is a black flag with a red A. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, honestly, the Zapatista movement is very uh, interesting because, I, I mean, they come out of uh, the conditions that they, that they were birthed out of come from an indigenous mindset, not a Western one. Absolutely. So, like, they're not really anarchists and they're not really Marxists, but yet they're both. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's something unique on the earth. Yeah. yeah. And, and they definitely put in the work to, to make that. So, you know, spending time with the indigenous people and learning their, their way of life and their worldview. Right. And actually I would love to do a, a piece at some point on the Zapatista movement. I would as well. uh, Most yeah. of what I know about them, I learned from, revolutionary left radio mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. with the uh the help of brett's guest on those episodes uh oh, associate professor guess. alexander avina from mm-hmm. arizona state university Very he is cool. the associate professor of latin american history cool and he politically identifies as a zapatista <laughs> that's awesome that's really cool you have that that awesome local resource too. I mean, I follow him on Twitter now. I tried sending mm-hmm. him a, a friend request on Facebook, but according to his Twitter, he never uses Facebook. Yeah, it can <laughs> um, be. Yeah, maybe, maybe I mean that. That being said, my girlfriend does go to school at ASU, and she suggested trying there to contact go. him and see if I could like sit in on his lectures. Sure. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm sure he's got an office somewhere that you could, you know, at least slip a note under the door or something. Yeah. Say, hey, I really, really like your work. I'd like to meet with you or whatever. Right. That'd be really but, cool. Yeah, he was a really informative guest. He's been a repeat guest on Rev Life Radio. He talked about uh, the Cuban Revolution. He talked about the Mexican Revolution. He talked about the Zapatista movement. And that might be it, but there might be more than that. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the ones that I remember. Though. Yeah, that's, that's really cool, though. Um, but I mean, it's it's interesting to see here in the belly of the beast, people coming from like a corporate kind of academia perspective, 
uh, or background, I should say, that are willing to, to align with more radical ideas. Um, That's encouraging, yeah. I, I mean, just for like, a, this example is gonna predate me a little bit per se, but mm -hmm. like Michael Parenti, think mm -hmm. about it. It was peak Reaganism at the time. Oh, the neoliberal machine was just getting yeah. fired up. And he comes out of academia as a Marxist-Leninist not just like a democratic social pretty incredible yeah but a straight up marxist leninist in the reagan era yeah yeah that's that's really amazing i, I love his lectures they just yeah i've only i've only heard a few and in every single one he was yellow <laughs> yeah the the yellow tapes yeah his famous yellow tapes i definitely want yeah. to cover that on my stream someday because they're just so good yeah that could be another uh really good uh well and that's the thing too is i i, I get the vibe that he was also very influenced by anarchism mm -hmm. even if he you know like called himself a marxist leninist and maybe agreed mm -hmm. with that approach more um I, I think it's important to point out the anarchist influence in that for sure for sure yeah no no reason we got to be uh enemies or anything like that or, um, right right and it's like uh, Brandon, who we were talking about earlier, the dude who's in uh, New Orleans now from Texas, he, um, we were talking about infighting on the left and he was like, well, what difference does it make if we disagree on the role of the state if we still live under capitalism? Yeah, for sure. We're, we're never going to get any progress <laughs> as long as we allow that boot heel on our necks. Yeah. Yep. Um, man, I'd really like to have him on again. I mean, I feel like he's probably a little too busy at this exact moment. But oh yeah, okay. He was a he was a fun guest though, and yeah, an informative like guest, really. Very cool. Very cool. We were all uh, fairly new to the left outside of you know Bernie Sanders socialism, anyway. <laughs> at, at the at the time, um, yeah. Which it's hard to believe that was less than a year ago. Like holy shit. I know. I know. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm, and yeah, I myself am, am fairly new to the left too. It's only been the last like two or three years when I've really been digging into actual leftism before I was just kind of like, you know, I, I basically agree with these ideas. You know, I called myself an anarchist, but I hadn't done any of the theory or, or really dived into the politics of it too much at that point yet. I wouldn't have thought that there is nearly as much to dive into pertaining to anarchism as there mm -hmm. really is. Um, I mean, I, I don't know why, like, in my head, I had this idea, like, oh, well, you know, if they're anti-establishment, anti-hierarchy, then, yeah. you know, why would, there, why would they, like, prop up intellectual minds like other ideologies do? But damn, I couldn't have been more wrong. Yeah, no, I, I think it's just because of that, that old cliche that uh, uh, communists like to read and, and not so much act and anarchists like to act and not so much think or read but it's totally not true it's absolutely not true but i think that's that's one of the bad perceptions that that even leftists tend to adopt out there yeah yeah i mean we still see that playing out today mm -hmm, for sure yeah i can think of plenty of youtubers that that still hold that view that i mean not to not to like plug rev left radio too much but there was uh, a there was a one of the best there. what they're, they're one of the best ones out there of all the podcasts on the left. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, well, honestly, watching in, in the early days of the podcast, watching Brett's like growth, you know, mm -hmm. from a more, uh, well, I mean, he was still fairly liberal in a lot of in a lot of ways when he started doing it. 
Oh, I didn't um, even realize that. I, I mean, I don't think that he, well, he certainly didn't call himself a liberal, but I mean, you know, just like yeah, thought processes that are a result of growing up under a liberal system. For sure. Um, to, to, to watch him kind of like deconstruct those things, you know, like he didn't ever have a problem pointing the finger at himself you uh -huh. know, and being like, well, these are things that I've struggled with. Yeah. Um, and I feel like there's not too many voices on the left that do that. No, no, absolutely not. Everyone, virtually everyone, not everyone, but but the vast majority like to project this idea that that they know everything. They have all the answers. They've they've thought of all the, the counter arguments and they've passed them all. But that's not true. And I think really you're right. The left needs a lot more humility and vulnerability. I, I try to do that on my own stream. If I don't know a concept, like I was just going through state and revolution last night, there was, there were some concepts that I was still struggling with. Like why does the, the proletarian state wither away? Like they just kept saying it was like, you know, this is, this is going to happen after we've knocked out the bourgeois state and replaced it with the proletarian state. Eventually the proletarian state withers away. I'm like, well, why does that happen? I, I you know, but I admitted that right on stream and it'll be in the, the final video too. And I think that's what more of us really need to do. Just admit we don't know something because it's an opportunity. It's not a well, bad thing. And I, I think that's something that Lenin maybe intentionally left open-ended like that. And that, 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 yeah, that was my thought too. Yeah. Um, because I don't think that they, that he knew at that point. I mean, they knew that it could take generations. Sure. So, I mean, to, to think that it, I do think it was a little maybe optimistic to uh, sure. just assume that that the proletarian, uh, proletarian state is just going to wither away. I mean, right. there have to be methods in place to enable that. Um, but I mean, that being said, I think I think that the majority of the Bolsheviks knew that it wasn't going to be like, oh, we're going to have a proletarian, uh, proletarian state for a year or two. And yeah, then, and then it was gonna go right. I, I think that they were all very aware that it was going to take generations. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Look at what they fought against in the first five years. <laughs> yeah. Oh, unimaginable odds. And, and they still came out and, and triumphed for a long while. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, it, I, you know, ultimately I concluded that it's like what you say. It doesn't really matter how that happens as much as it matters that we at least get to that point where we have a proletarian state, you know, and do away with the, the bourgeois state. So that, you know, whether or not it's realistic to think that the proletarian state would ever wither away on its own. That's not the important part. The important part is getting to that point. That's kind of how I looked at it. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh. The two most prominent representatives of the anarchist idea in America, uh, Volterine de Clear and Emma Goldman, one a Native American and the other a Russian, uh, have been converted like numerous others, to the ideas of anarchism by the judicial murder. Two women who had not known each other before and who had received a widely different uh, education were through that murder united in one idea. Hmm. And I think whether it's, whether it's anarchism or communism or even utopian socialism, the, the whole idea is unity, right? So, I, I mean... I, I get what I get the point they're trying to make. Obviously, at this point in time, for two women to be the prominent voices of anarchism, um, and, and you know, neither one, uh, neither one being a white male, uh -huh. <laughs> you know, like 
That's pretty remarkable. They, yeah. And they didn't know each other. Mm-hmm. They they were educated drastically differently. But yeah, they were united in this one idea. But if that one idea is unity, then mm-hmm. it shouldn't be that hard for those situations to manifest. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Very good. Um. All right. I guess I'll, I'll just uh, pick up after that. Uh, like most working men and women in of America, Emma Goldman followed the Chicago trial with great anxiety and excitement. She too could not believe that the leaders of the proletariat would be killed. The 11th of November, 1887, taught her differently. She realized that no mercy could be expected from the ruling class. That between the uh, the czarism of Russia and the plutocracy of America, there was no difference save in name. Her whole being rebelled against the crime, and she vowed to herself a solemn vow to join the ranks of the revolutionary proletariat and to devote all her energy and strength to the emancipation from wage slavery. So I just want to point out there that, uh, you know, it's not just the state that anarchists have an issue with. Mm -hmm. Their emancipation from wage slavery. Right. In other words, I would assume that she was probably promoting such things as worker-owned co-ops. You know, the proletarian ownership of the means of production, I would assume, would have to be on that. Yeah, and again, um, it, it's it's the same goal no matter which side of the left you're on. It's just different means and and perhaps different structures once you finally get there. But it's the same goal is is the liberation of people. Right. But I just wanted to point that out because a lot of people tend to think that anarchists have an issue with the state, but they don't necessarily. I guess what I'm trying to say is that ANCAPs are not anarchists. Oh, not at all. Uh, like that, you know, in any serious leftist space, they, they're the 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 butt of of so-called anarchism. Like the the right always likes to do this. They they try to co-opt language. Like libertarian itself never meant something on the right until. Uh, no, actually, uh, libertarian was a uh, was a uh, a term used to discuss you know collectivism more broadly. Um, and it, it was like a social libertarianism. Like, sure, they didn't want to be fucking oppressed by the state, but they also wanted the people to be taken care of. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but then uh, along comes Murray Rothbard, who he believed in such things as, as child slavery being okay, because you can do whatever the hell you want. It's that sort of really low level idea of what freedom is. But anyway, he comes along and purposely repurposes the word libertarian to mean something that it never was intended to. And somehow it's stuck in America, which is unfortunate because we've been putting that that pollution out into the rest of the world ever since and, and selling the name of, of libertarianism uh, everywhere. So it's very unfortunate. But anyway, back back to the, the text there. Uh, her whole okay so her whole being rebelled got past that part uh with the glowing enthusiasm so characteristic of her nature she now began to familiarize herself with the literature of socialism and anarchism she attempted or she excuse me she attended public meetings and became acquainted with uh socialistically and anarchistically inclined working men johanna gray that's a lot of vowels right there in a row. Gray, I, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that one, 
a, I, I think my wife would, she knows German. I'll have to ask her later on. Uh, the well-known German lecturer was the first socialist speaker heard by Emma Goldman in New Haven, Connecticut, where she was employed in, in a corset factory. She met, oh, there's a symbol right there, being employed as a wage slave in a corset factory. That's something that was designed to imprison women's bodies, like literally. Um, yeah. She met anarchists actively participating in the movement. She read the uh, Freiheit, edited by John Most. The Haymarket tragedy developed her interest in anarchist tendencies. The reading of Freiheit made her a conscious anarchist. Subsequently, she was to learn the idea of anarchism found its highest expression through the best intellectuals of America, theoretically by Josiah Warren, Stephen Pearl, Andrews, Lysander Spooner, and philosophically by Emerson, Thoreau, and Walt Whitman. Hmm. I mean, that's that's interesting that she would be reading Emerson and Thoreau. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that they're absolute garbage. I mean, for, for American <laughs> uh, philosophy, I guess, they weren't right. atrocious, but they uh -huh. certainly weren't anarchists. Yeah. I mean, at least Walt Whitman had some decent poetry in there, too. That's why I left him out of that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Thoreau, man, you, you gotta you gotta wonder about including him in that. But yeah, well, I mean, to be fair, though, I mean, Ho Chi Minh, uh, you know, took a lot of influence in his early days from the Declaration of Independence and uh, the writings of uh, Thomas Paine. There you go. Yeah, so, I mean, it is, it is what it is, but mm -hmm. I mean, you know, he asked the United States for help overthrowing the French and the United States invaded. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that story that's been played out again and again. And we just, we never learned that lesson. I mean, I suppose in a way we do learn that lesson. We, we know that even in war, we can, uh, there's always profiteers that can come in and make tons of money while Americans die and while the other side is slaughtered and and yeah there's American imperialism for you yeah <laughs> oh man I could probably rant about the Vietnam War for a long time oh what what a just debacle on all on on all American sides just yeah well I mean we burnt down like half of the fucking forest in Vietnam and what four years five years like expose people to all kinds of debilitating chemicals that still have an effect on on births today and and they're just they're mostly just the absolute poorest rice farmers around and, and we're bombing them and, and shooting them in mass like right. but i mean i'm just saying that uh that that poor broken band of Rice farmers sure shit kicked our ass. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it shows that that you can resist the American Empire and its imperial warriors. Uh, but on the well, other I hand, mean, just like you know, we toppled the table, uh, the Taliban when we invaded Afghanistan in two thousand one, and uh, they yeah. were back in power before we even finished our withdrawal. Yeah, we haven't really won a war since 
uh, World, World War II, II, which we took a shit ton of credit from the Russians. To, to. <laughs> I mean, that's absolutely true, true as well. We've never been on the winning side. We'll even say that since World War II. And yet we just keep getting ourselves entangled. And I, I mean, it is all for for profit in the end and uh, the, the interests of, of capitalist businessmen. So whether or not we technically win or lose, that's that's always the goal is is capitalism and its expansion. So. Yeah. Made <laughs> ill by the excessive strain of factory work, Emma Goldman returned to Rochester, where she remained until August 1889, at which time she, it says removed, but I'm pretty sure it's supposed to say moved. Yeah. Uh, to New York, the scene of the most important phase of her life. She was now 20 years old. Features pallid with suffering, eyes locked. <laughs> Excuse me. Eyes large and full of compassion, greet one in her pictured likeness of those days. Her hair is, as customary with Russian student girls, worn short, giving free play to the strong forehead. It is the heroic epic of militant anarchism. By leaps and bounds, the movement had grown in every country. In spite of the most severe governmental persecution, new converts swell the ranks. The propaganda is almost exclusively of a secret character. The repressive measures of the government drive the disciples of the new philosophy to conspirative methods. Thousands of victims fall into the hands of the authorities and languish in prisons. But nothing can stem the rising tide of enthusiasm, of self-sacrifice and devotion to the cause. The efforts of teachers like Peter Kropotkin, Louise Michel, Elise Recluse, and others inspire the devotees with ever greater energy. I'm not sure when we're gonna get to it um, because you know we're kind of trading back and forth between anarchist and tom communist texts. Obviously, mm. right now we're doing anarchism and yeah. other essays. So the next one will be a communist book. Um, actually, maybe it'll be like the middle, the middle of the road, and we'll do something about the Paris Commune. I have a book about it that I'd actually oh, really like cool. to do on the show. But I would love to learn more about that. Yeah. Um, in terms of the next explicitly anarchist works that we plan to do, they mentioned, they mentioned Peter Kropotkin, so, you know. <laughs> that's, the, that's one I want to cover as well. That's up there on my list as well. I haven't read the whole thing yet. Um, I mean, dude, it's dry. It's like as dry as Mark's dry. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But that being said, I mean, essentially, he's he's laying out um, well, as the title would suggest, how mutual aid is a factor Absolutely. in human evolution. Absolutely. Uh, which, I mean, I mean, it obviously is, because if, mm -hmm. if what the capitalists say about our instinctive nature being so violent and competitive, then we would have yeah. never survived. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Yeah. I mean, just the, the idea of... of um, the way that humans come up in the world, like you, you start the world, you come into the world completely helpless, absolutely helpless in every way. And you have to rely on the kindness and the, the nurturing instincts of your family. Uh, I mean, that alone, that, 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 that's literally mutual aid. That, that's what that starts out as, is giving mm -hmm. to others because they are alive and you care about them as human beings. And it doesn't take anything more. It's not like, babies you know contribute to the economy of the family and yet right. they are supported 
So and and in my opinion, and granted, I'm I'm fairly new to anarchist texts, but sure. in my opinion, mutual aid, a factor of evolution, is one of the most important anarchist texts. I mean, like really, it it lays out what we need to do mm-hmm. um, to have a system in place for the capitalist system to topple. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's something that, that anarchists and Marxists alike tend to leave too open. Whereas uh, Kropotkin not only makes the case for that being the future, but also mm-hmm. makes the case as to how that's how we got here. Yeah. 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 I think that's very true. Yeah. I, I, I always try to center mutual aid at, at the heart of, of, you know how I view the world as it as it should be. So I think that's that's very true. Yeah. So, um, you know, if we want to do another cross pollination effort for that, I'm I'm totally down. I would I would definitely be down with that as well. That'd be really cool. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. love that. Um, disruption is imminent with the socialists who have sacrificed the idea of liberty and embraced the state and politics. I don't necessarily like the wording of that, but I'll, I'll let it go. I'll move on. Sure. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the struggle is bitter. The factions irreconcilable. The struggle is not merely between anarchists and socialists. It also finds its echo within the anarchist groups. Theoretic differences and personal controversies lead to strife and acrimonious en- <laughs> enmities. The anti-socialist legislation of Germany, Austria, uh, after the 1918, 1919, I forget when the, the revolutions and counter revolutions in Germany were. Yeah. I'm, 1918, I'm, 1919, I think. I don't know offhand with that. Um, but I mean, this anti socialist legislation in Germany and Austria, that is, that is like when the Nazi pot, uh, party was just starting out. That was one of the first things that they did was pass a bunch of anti-socialist leg- legislation. Meanwhile, the right wingers say that the Nazis were socialists. Figure figure this shit out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just because Nazism will will superficially take on basically any ideology in order to attract enough power in until they're no longer needed, and then they literally just slaughter those people that are no longer conducive to their rise in power. And that's what they did with the Strasserites. So it's just, it's brain dead logic from the right once again. Um, right. Um, anyway, this anti-socialist legislation had driven thousands of socialists and anarchists across the seas to seek refuge in America. Because, you know, we're so free and shit. <laughs> yeah. John Most, having lost his seat in the right, uh, the Reichstag, finally had to flee his native land and went to London. There, uh, well, and that's not, it's not like he's the first person that had to flee Germany because of political writings either. I mean, remember, Marx was kicked out of Germany and then he was kicked yep. out of France. Yep. <laughs> uh, and then he was kicked out of England. So or was he kicked out of England? I didn't, I didn't know that part of it. Maybe he wasn't kicked out of England. He was arrested in England. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. He seemed like kind of a surly guy in his, his private life, you know, like. Well, like yeah. I mean, there's a. Whip, there's whip a, stuff up. Oh my God! Yeah, there's some pretty epic stories of of Marx that are that have been written about, whether it was by him or by yeah. his wife or by a friend. 
there's just so many ridiculous stories about Karl Marx that are out there, uh, such as when he was living, I forget if it was Paris or London, but he was living somewhere and the cops showed up to essentially escort him out of the country. I'm pretty sure it was Paris. And um, he answered the door wearing nothing but an open bathrobe with a shotgun oh. in his hands. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That's yeah, I, I mean that's that's all you really need to know about Karl um, Marx. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah. back to the text. There, having advanced towards anarchism, he entirely withdrew from the Social Democratic Party. Uh, which, I mean, not to say the Social Democratic Party was great, but I think it was about the the best thing that they had inside the electoral system yeah. in Germany at the time. I'd say that's still the case today. It's, it's, it's the furthest left you can go without breaking through the wall of capitalism. Right. Something better. Well, and I mean, even, even the, uh, okay. So like when the social democratic party took power and they rewrote their, their constitution, I mean, they literally put in their constitution that they can seize the means of production by ballot referendum. That's in their constitution. Wow. So, I mean, it's not to say that that they're not far enough left. It's it's just a, a question of whether or not you believe that a bourgeois electoral system is, is actually willing to deliver those sorts of reforms. Right, right, yep. Um, and that's that's ultimately my issue with it. And I mean, that's yeah. that's my issue with the Nordic model as well. I mean, sure. don't get me wrong, it's super successful, but they still exploit the global south, and that's a big uh-huh. no-go for me. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and um, they, they still rely on American imperialism to project itself around the world and, you know, yeah, take exactly. goods from that. I, so. I mean, they're, they're still capitalist enough right? Um, to, well, as you just said, uh, to coattail on American imperialism. For sure. Yeah, it's just that <laughs> you know, what they see in their everyday life, things are pretty good. You know, if you have job securities and protections and, and I mean, every, everybody's union, right? Yeah. I I mean, there is no like federally mandated minimum wage in Sweden or Finland. Mm -hmm. The union mandates the wages and everybody's part of the union. So, yep. Yeah. I, I, I do see some value in that because it does prime people towards the ideas of, of socialism and, and other leftist ideologies. At least they, they, they can understand the value of collective action. And um, Well, right. And they see it impact their lives firsthand right. every day. Yeah. So, but I, I yeah, I see it kind of both sides, whether or not you can ever make that push then to, to break free of capitalism completely or not. So, well, yeah. And I, I mean... That. We saw that same struggle unfold in the United States as well. Um, you know, like we have a piece on this too, but like the AFL and the CIO, for mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. the AFL was pretty much your, your liberal labor yeah. union and the CIO yeah. was your more radical, like let's take actual action type right. uh, union. And then the AFL swallowed the CIO and they became the AFL-CIO and now they're stumping for the Democratic Party in every election. Yeah, yeah, pretty much locked in with them now. Yeah. And, and that's not to say that you shouldn't get involved with the AFL-CIO. I oh, no. Mean, honestly, if they get involved with organizing your workplace, you're probably going to end up with the union. Yeah, you're, you're always better off with a union than without. I, I think that's pretty 
unquestionable at this point. But I, I think that if your workplace does organize through the AFL-CIO, you should also join a more radical union like the IWW, um, you know, to really try to build that class solidarity and I to agree. help that union grow, ultimately. I agree. Yeah. Yep. Couldn't agree more. And I mean, I know that you're going to be paying dues to two unions at that point, but I mean, I don't know what it is for the AFL-CIO, but the dues for the IWW are like $11 a month. Yeah. It's not like... It's, it's pretty reasonable. In, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, sure. Anyway, back to the text. Later, sure. coming to America, he continued the publication of the Freiheit in New York and developed great activity among the German working men. Um, and, and that's something else that we see recurring in different places in America in this time period. Um, all these, uh, well, our former uh, co-host, Dean, used to refer to them as the collectivized immigrants that came from Germany or France or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the Nordic states even, um, mm-hmm. that, that had already been well exposed to socialist and communist ideology or anarchist ideology in this case. Um, but the point is, is they already, they came to America with this kind of collectivized mindset. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, these, these German speaking papers popped up all over the U.S. promoting socialism and anarchism. Mm-hmm. And that's what spurred the labor movement in the United States. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that, that definitely happened in, in Minnesota quite a lot, especially along the Iron Range. They had a lot of people from Nordic countries and they, they formed very strong unions that, that lasted a long time. Well, yeah. And I mean, even if, uh, obviously uh, my my personal history in terms of what I know, mm-hmm. uh, the, the labor unions, the birth of the UAW, let's, let's start there. The sit-down strike in Flint, Michigan. Mm-hmm. That was pretty much by uh, let, which wasn't until 1937, so it's obviously a little later than this, but still a huge, a huge event. Whether or not it's in the history books, it was a huge event. Um, well, and imagine how how scared the powers that be must have been when everybody showed up for work, and then sat down and started playing cards instead of making cars. Yeah. Yep. Like they couldn't bring in scabs. They had that shit shut down. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, anyway, so a little a little off topic, but the point sure. is though, is that a lot of the people who were involved with the organization were socialist party members or were members of the IWW or you know had started organizing with the Communist Party. The point is, is that almost all of them, or uh, at least half of them, statistically speaking, Mm -hmm. were immigrants, Mm -hmm. even at that point, or, you know, descendants of immigrants. Um, So, I mean, I think that those seeds being planted in in the Midwest specifically, but not only, (laughs) but those seeds being planted in the in the Midwest in the late 1880s through the early 1900s were crucial towards the, um, well, not only the growth of the auto industry, because Mm -hmm. after the union got in there, then all of a sudden it was all these people looking for these great paying jobs, Mm -hmm. um, which led to a mass migration from the former Confederacy to the Midwest. That's right. Um, The point is though, is that almost all of that had to do with this mass influx of collectivized immigrants at the turn of the century in the Midwest. 
mm-hmm. we wouldn't have had that huge industrial push if it wasn't for that in my opinion yeah no i think i think you're spot on with that that analysis there he contributed greatly and we owe a lot to those those former generations today yeah yeah um we've been at this for a while though so i was just about to mention yeah um i guess it probably is about time to uh start wrapping it up sure um, i mean i'm actually kind of like i'm looking at the scroller on the side and seeing how like little yeah. we've gotten into it <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm totally cool with it because yeah, yeah. like we've almost every paragraph we <laughs> we've dove in and either tied it to today or tied it to context before or shortly after it um yeah you I know but the- like those types of that context is important yeah i mean remember a- when this was when this was written right a lot of people uh already would have known the context when we're mm-hmm. reading it over a hundred years later right. there's no way for us to know the context right 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 yeah yeah this is definitely important groundwork for when we finally get into the text itself so yeah and it, it, it's been fun doing this too it's just uh yeah. having the back and forth and the, the exchange of ideas and all that sort of thing yeah for sure um once again i know that you are uh in the middle of well probably not the middle yet you're what in the third or fourth piece of our chapter rather in state and revolution yeah yeah i'm just getting into uh, uh chapter two really yeah oh chapter two. yeah well <laughs> i tried an experiment i tried doing like what we're doing here reading the text out loud and then also commenting on it and then also responding to chatters at the same time and it just it was too slow going and it just wore my voice out way too much so i've, I've gone back to just listening to the audiobook and then pausing to comment i got you no so, that makes sense yeah 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 I, I just finished chapter one so i'll be doing chapter two on uh next friday so yeah that you know you want to get in early on the book there's still plenty of time to do that and and catch up to to where we've been so far yeah absolutely um it's it's an important book i mean absolutely um, it is i i think that that there's some ideas that are lined out in it that that anarchists could use as well oh absolutely i i I understand that they're going to disagree with a, a big part of the premise of the book I mean, obviously, it's about the role of the state following a proletarian revolution, whereas, yeah. generally speaking, anarchists believe there should be no state after after yeah. a proletarian revolution. But um, it kind of lays out what a world after the revolution would have to look like for it to for it to last. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely can see the the points that that Lenin is making about uh, why that sort of thing is necessary to to, as we saw happened, have to fend off all sorts of enemies that are coming to destroy your revolution, both from within and from without. Um, so I can definitely see the point that, that he's, he's going for. Um, and at the same time, I see the other side, just the, the general suspicion of any sort of concentration of power being allowed to remain that, that anarchists might have. So, But I think both sides are, are important to understand no matter yeah. where it is you're coming from. And it helps you understand your own beliefs better by understanding what other people think too. So. Agreed. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot to that book. He kind of lays out what a, what a Vanguard party is. The funny thing is, is that this book came out after 
the October Revolution. I know. Yeah. Like he had, he had to put it on pause to, he had other chapters planned, but he had to put it on pause to, to go actually to the things he was talking about. That's pretty yeah. incredible. So. Yeah. Um, that being said, I'm glad that it was finally released in 1919. Um, it was first published in English, I think by the, uh, United States communist party in 1921. Um, and obviously like the context in the United States was far different. Oh, but sure. I mean, state and revolution was an important piece of even what the Black Panther Party would do in the 60s. Absolutely. They, they would never have had that level of organization. Mm-hmm. Um, they would have never have had that kind of mass support if it wasn't for Lenin's work in state and revolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's inspired move- many, many movements in the U.S. Um, there was, some, there was some farm workers organization in the South that, that I know was also really inspired by it. The name's not coming to me at the moment, but um, yeah, they were also very much inspired by communist texts. Yeah, um, which I mean, I'm obviously more of a communist than an anarchist. Sure. But yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that being said, I do try. <laughs> these are two of my favorite theory books, right? Nice. It's an anarchist book and one's a communist book. Yeah. But yeah. why why don't we take the ideas from this, mm-hmm. blend them with the ideas from this? Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, like, I might call myself a communist, but really, if there's a proletarian revolution in the United States, mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to fall under any currently existing ism. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's certainly true. And it's it's hard to even imagine the context where we'll get to the point where that can actually happen. But but for certain, just because of the different material conditions on the ground, it's, it's going to come up different than it ever has in the past. Yeah. And I think in terms of like an American vanguard party, I think our best example, at least in the last, you know, 50 or 60 years probably is the Black Panther Party. Because, and, and I mean, not just yeah, the Black Panther Party, mm-hmm. but the, the organizations that they worked with, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the Young Lords, mm-hmm. uh, for example, the, um, shit, what was the, what was the group of Southern farmers? There was yeah. a, there was a group of white Southern farmers that was involved. Right. And then of course the White Panthers out of Detroit, which was started by right. the, the MC5, which was uh-huh. banned out of Detroit. Um, yeah. I, I mean, you know, Fred Hampton's rainbow coalition, I would argue mm-hmm. was, was much more effective than Jesse Jackson's rainbow coalition. Yeah. I mean, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's that's no disrespect to Jesse Jackson. I, I admire what he's done over the sure. years, but at the end of the day, he's still a liberal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's, he's made quite a few concessions <laughs> to the establishment and, and the status quo. So, right. Yep. Yeah. yeah, I think you're totally spot on with the, the uh, Black Panther Party being the closest thing we've had to a, a vanguard party. And that's definitely true. And, I, and I don't think that they asked for that, you know? I think no, it's kind of just like forced on them. <laughs> I mean, I think that's the case with pretty much any revolutionary uh, group. You never really ask for it. It's never the people that that have just been sitting around only reading theory for years and find, oh, finally now is our moment. It's it's people that find themselves in conditions they can no longer accept and and forced to act to change the world or, or risk perishing. So, Yeah. 
Yeah, totally agreed. Cool. All right. Um, well, thank you, thank you everybody for joining us. And um, as far as for We Are Many podcast, we have material. Obviously, this will be airing Monday. Tuesday, we have our um, Star Trek Communist stream. Wednesday, we have Ford's Battle of the Overpass. You like how I had to check my notes there? <laughs> <laughs> um, which, I mean, again, being that most of us are from Michigan, uh, out of the automakers, the one that fought the unions the hardest was Henry Ford. Yeah. And that led to, well, more than one confrontation, but there was literally a firefight in an overpass near near a factory. Mm. Um, and uh, that's what we'll be talking about this coming Wednesday. Thursday will be part two of... Eldridge Cleaver's book, Soul on Ice. And then, you know, Friday, you have State yep. and Revolution. State and then Revolution. Sunday, you have Permaculture Part 8, you said? Uh, so so this Sunday will be Part 8. So I guess by the time this comes out, we'll be looking forward to Permaculture Part 9. Because okay, we've still got a long way to go in the, in the videos that I have lined up for it. So I bet. I bet. Yeah. And once again, I just want to say thank you for doing that. Oh, it's, yeah. Uh, like you said, a lot of that, a lot of that information is often hid behind paywalls. Yeah. Um, almost all of it is really. A lot of it is. Yeah. Uh, there's places you can get some of the text for free. And I, and I try to put that information out there. But yep. Yeah. Definitely needs to be more open. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess that's about all I got. All right. Well, well thanks so, so much for having me. This was a lot of fun, and I can't wait to continue on next week. Yeah. All right. Solidarity. Solidarity. <laughs>